Good morning and welcome back to the Beers for Bacon show with me, Jason Black. In our penultimate show, I thought it would be good to cover something we've touched on but not fully dived into. Desserts. And because not everybody has a sweet tooth, I've got some great advice from the legendary cheese expert Patrice Marchand on what cheeses he would order after a big meaty dinner. JCVNs will be sharing another wine story while he's traveling, and I've lined up a few notable chefs to share some of the tricks of the trade for some of Hong Kong's most popular desserts. We've got a gadget test, two letters in our alphabet soup, and a must-buy cookbook for your shelf, if you can find a copy. All of that, and a little bit more, right after our wine guy, JCVNs, who this week is in New York. I like New York in June. How about you? I like a Gershwin too. How about you? Good morning, Jason. I'm sending you my voice this morning directly from New York on Fifth Avenue. I'm at a place called Italy, an incredible, incredible spot. Imagine that, Jason. Italy is the second most visited tourist attraction after the Empire State Building. Yes, but listen to this. Italy is a food market, an Italian food market. And I'm here having lunch with my sweet Maria, and we are surrounded by beautiful, fantastic foods from Italy. The place is divided in several sections. There is a place for bread, for pasta, for mozzarella, all of these made in-house, beautiful, fresh pasta. But just looking at it, my mouth is watering. There is also spots for uh, fish, meat, and cheeses, Jason. All of these flown in from Italy every single day. This place is so big, so popular, that there is about 15,000 people walking through the doors each day. Incredible place. I, I mean, you should see it. And uh, talking about cheese, the counter is beautiful. You can see the picture on the Facebook page. 400 cheeses, all from Italy, all from the north, the center, the south, the islands. Beautiful things. So. Hey, I know that you are talking about sweet things as well today, and so I went in the wine section and I looked for some sweet wines for our show, and I discovered my beloved absolute jewel called Ben Rier from Dona Fugata, and this is a wine from Sicily. In fact, this is a wine from a, an island, a very small island that is possibly closer to Africa than it is to Italy, and it's called Pantelleria. Now, this Ben Rie wine is a wine made from the Moscato grape. In Sicily, they call this grape Zibibbo. In fact, the real name is Moscato di Alessandria. And this is a relatively uh, aromatic grape uh, that gives uh, slightly floral notes, blossom perfume, uh, wonderful. But this wine is very special, Jason, because it is made from uh, dried grapes. What they do is they pick the grapes, uh, normally as they would do in any harvest, but they lay down some straw mats on the ground and they put the grapes very gently on all these straw mats and they let the grapes dry in the sunshine for about three weeks time. So what happens here 
is that uh, the water evaporates from the grapes and it concentrates the sugar, concentrates the sweetness, concentrates the aroma, the acidity, and the result is a beautiful, fantastic, luscious wine that is so sweet, but at the same time so floral, so perfumed, so full of beautiful aromatics. And so you have a little bit of blossom in this wine, you have a little bit of apricot, but what is interesting, you also have a kind of walnut character that is absolutely delicious, especially with desserts that are made with a chocolate base uh, or chocolate dominant in the desert. Uh, uh, desert. Sorry for my French accent. Eh? Desert. Desert. Yes. Something like that. And so... Uh, this wine is absolutely beautiful. I love it. And it's available in Hong Kong. Ben Rier, it is called, from uh, the grape called Moscato Zibibo. And the wine is from Pantelleria, Moscato di Pantelleria. You know, another wine that I found uh, that was uh, there is a Lambrusco. You know, many people talk about Lambrusco in a bad way because they had a bad experience maybe 30 years ago. Lambrusco was considered to be a red sparkling wine that students would drink together with a pizza. But it's a pity to think in this way because Lambrusco is actually a floral, perfumed, wild strawberries, black cherry notes, sparkling wine from central of Italy in a region called Emilia-Romagna and Lambrusco can be very very nice at the end of a meal together with dessert and it's also beautiful with cheese you can hear my voice that I'm very excited because I am in front here of my sweet Maria and we're having a great time in New York and I hope Jason that you have a great time in Hong Kong as well ciao we think it's great how about you JC will be back one last time next week. For our book today, I thought I'd review a book by Pierre Hermé, who was recently voted the best pastry chef in the world on the San Pellegrino list. As part of my own pastry and bread studies in Paris in 2009, I was fortunate enough to do a stage at both of his labs, one on Rue Bonaparte and the other on Rue Vaugirard. For three months I was enchanted by flawless execution and an uncompromising approach to dessert perfection, using only the best ingredients in the world. There was a chocolate room with over 40 varieties, different kinds of butter for different pastries, different farm creams for entremet, and vanilla pods as thick as your finger. All amazing. We made every single thing from scratch and even rolled croissants by hand. It was without a doubt as good as it gets in the dessert world, and the books by Pierre Hermet are no different. Now, Chef Hermé has written a number of books, but the one that I'd like to chat about today is PH10. Now, there's a spoiler alert. It's hard to get, it's expensive, and it's also only in French. And if that hasn't deterred you, another thing is that it's aimed at those who already know their way around the pastry kitchen. A few years ago, these would have been negatives, but I honestly believe that things have changed and that those who do love cooking 
and cookbooks especially, enjoy the real deal, no matter the challenges. This book is as real as it gets. The recipes are almost identical to the ones I remember making. The techniques are the same and the ingredients are uncompromisingly top end. The book is split into 10 sections covering the traditional forms of desserts and there is a strong assumption that you understand the processes involved. But don't be afraid. Be very afraid. But also know that if you do get your hands on the book, it'll be one of the best dessert books you'll ever buy even just for the inspiration alone. Right, I enjoyed last week's gadget test so much, I thought I'd tell you about a useful one for a change. Okay, quick and simple gadget test today. It's one that's vital in the pastry kitchen and also if you make jams or anything like that. It's something that's been around for a very, very long time um, based on an old glass mercury thermometer. It's known as a candy thermometer or a sugar thermometer. How it works is pretty much it's got a mercury tube and a long thin bit of glass surrounded by a steel cage. Now how this works is you put your sugar in a pan um, and uh, always remember that when you work with sugar it's really really dangerous you don't want to get burnt with this. Okay put your sugar in a pan Okay, and then pop your pan on the stove, get it hot, and your sugar will start to caramelize. We don't need the sugar scoop anymore. Put that down. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take your, um, your heat applier to the, to the pan and then take the sugar thermometer and put it into the sugar as it starts to liquefy. You'll see that um, the red uh, or the mercury in, in the actual sugar thermometer will start to rise and you can then work off your temperature that you need. Normally you have sugar in stages of soft boil, hard boil, and this um, gives you your accurate use of temperature uh, if you're going to be making Italian meringue or anything like that. For me, this is a very, very useful gadget and it's definitely a keeper. Now, having been in food and beverage for 99% of my working life, there is little that surprises me. I've had great friendships with a lot of chefs and I've come to appreciate their style and what they can do. Probably the biggest surprise I've had for a long time is a key lime pie, especially from a chef that I know and you know for working with powerful spices and a deep fryer. This is Jack Carson talking all about his key lime pie. Just like old saxophone Joe When he's got the whole head up on his toes Oh my the best way to do a key lime pie is to make it very, very basic. The less ingredients, the better. We generally use an acid way of really coagulating our condensed milk instead of the heat. In the form of acid, we use the lime juice and sour cream, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Key lime pie is mainly you want to use key limes from the Florida Keys, but obviously we're on the other side of the world. Uh, that's pretty impossible. Or you can be like my friend RJ at Tai Tai Pies that loves to bring in his own key lime juice. And he makes it authentic and it's amazing. But I can't afford to chip in key limes. So I use Thai and Australian limes. Uh, if you mix 8 to 2 or 4 to, to 1 ratio with limes with lemon, you can pretty much get the same acidity that you need. So for me, uh, my recipe... You want to start with uh, like a cookie base. Uh, graham cracker is the original like uh, original recipe that we've used for years and years. Obviously, graham crackers aren't uh, abundant here in Hong Kong, 
So we use uh, either a digestive biscuit, uh, or it's what we call cookies in America, uh, and we crush them up, add a little bit of butter to kind of get them pliable again, and some sugar, and basically you're just adding the sugars where you can make the, the biscuit base set. And you want to free-bake that first. Uh, the way I do it is I crush them all up either in a blender or in a bowl, add everything together, melt the butter to where you can squeeze a fist of it in your hand and it stays in that same form. Once that happens, uh, you're about ready. Then just press it in the inside of your pie shell. You're going to bake that at about 180 centigrade for four to six minutes, just enough to where you can get the, the sugar to become a liquid and hold the form of the pie dish. Then I use three cans of sweetened condensed milk. It has enough sugar in it. It's very, very easy. And then I use three quarters of a cup of the lemon-lime juice mixture I make, but not until I took all the zest off of the lemon and the limes. A lot of people don't realize, but the flavor usually comes, most of the flavor and citrus is in the skin. And if you take that out, um, it, it brings much more tartness and more vibrance to your pie. And you add that to a three cans of the condensed milk, one three-quarter cup of sour cream, three quarters cup of the lemon lime juice and once you mix these together you have about 40 seconds before it sets because what you're doing is using the acid from the sour cream and the lime juice in order to set all the proteins in the condensed milk and as soon as you bring it all together you can pour it into your pie base you can tap the pie base the whole pie uh, on the on the counter to kind of get rid of air bubbles then it goes in the oven at about 180 for six minutes no more you're not really baking the pie. What you're doing is you're just uh, releasing air bubbles and making the surface tension of the pie look really nice. You can just to set it a little bit more. And then it comes out, and you the best way is to let it set for an entire day. If you don't have the time, just wait until it's cool, and then you can cut. And we serve it with a little whipped cream on top and a nice slice of lime. And that's about it. That was Chef Jack Carson with a must-try version of Key Lime Pie. On pies, it would be simply wrong not to include one in our show. So I asked the ultimate pie guy, RJ Asher, all about a proper cherry pie. The best way to start with a pie is with the pie crust. That is what makes a pie perfect. Start with your butter, your flour, a little bit of salt. Sift the flour over into the pan, into a bowl. Take your butter in cubes, mix it up, roll it out with your hands. Have some fun with it. It's all about getting a little messy when you talk about the pie dough. After you have it all put together, you're going to take it into two pieces. One for the bottom, one for the top. Take your bottom one, put it down. Roll it out on your table. Make a nice round bottom for your pie shell. About an an eighth of an inch thick. Twelve inches wide. 22 centimeters, line your pie dish, put your fingers, make sure when you finish your pie you're going to crimp it, but we'll get the crimping after we get the top crust in. Put some more flour on your table, roll the top crust out. Okay, we're all rolled out for the top one, put that aside. Now we get the fun part. We're going to get our cherries all ready, we're going to pull them out. We're going to cook them on the stove for a little while with a little bit of water and sugar. Get that cooking up. 
You want to thicken it with a little bit of cornstarch. All right, that is looking wonderful. Nice and thick, not like a jam, but a little thick. We're going to take it off, let it cool a little bit. We're now going to add a little bit of lemon zest into it. A little bit of uh, sugar, a little more, just a little adding to it. We didn't put too much in it. It is a sour cherry pie. Now we're going to take it all in. We have our pie shell lined with the bottom crust. We're going to fill it all into the bottom of the pie. There you go. Wow. You can eat it just like this if I wanted to. Now we're going to take our top crust. Pick it up. Fold it in half. Fold it in a quarter. It'll be easier to lay it on top. Now you have it all symmetrically around. Trim the edges. Because again, you don't want too much dough on the edge. Trim it out. Leave about an inch, I would say. Now what we're going to do is the fun part. This is what I call crimping. It was what I was taught by my mother and my grandmother. You roll it around. You keep rolling as you go. Now the crimping. I use a three-finger crimp, which is my thumb on one hand and my thumb and my first finger on the other hand. And you start going around. And you crimp. And it's fun. Everybody has a hard time with it. I think it's fun and enjoyable. And everybody can learn this so easily. Okay, now when it's done, it looks beautiful. It's a handmade pie. It's what you want. We're now going to take it and cut in three to five little slits in top. The main reason you cut the slits in top, if you don't, it's going to blow up like a balloon. And you don't want it to pop in the oven. So you cut the slits to let the steam out. The steam is what's baking the inside and baking the dough. So we have our little slits. Looks beautiful. We're going to take, you have two options now, an egg wash if you want it a little glossy. I use a milk wash because I don't want it glossy. I want it to be more uh, like a true home-baked pie. You, you actually wash it with a little bit of the milk. You take the, some sugar. You sprinkle the sugar on top. I use the brown sugar, the big, you know, chunky sugar. Looks beautiful. Now we're taking it to the oven. Time to bake. Oh, that looks good. We're going to shut the oven up. Set the timer. We're going to cook it for 50 minutes. And we're going to cook it for 175. Here we go. Push start. Ready to go. Now we're going to wait for this to come out. And we're going to start eating some pie. That was Thai Thai Pie Pie's R.J. Asher. Now chocolate is probably high up on the list for everyone's favorite ingredient when it comes to dessert. So I thought we'd end off the sweet part of our show with a dessert from our go-to bread and dessert chef, Gregoire Michaud. Okay, so today we are going to do um, a chocolate pot de crème. It's a, it's a bit like a, like a crème brûlée kind of thing. For this recipe you will need uh, 200 grams of uh, cream, uh, 25 grams of milk, one very thick fat vanilla stick that you split in half, and uh, you you go ahead and you uh, you simmer this, so you infuse the vanilla into the milk and the cream, and then you have uh, on the side you have uh, 30 grams of dark chocolate. So I'll come back on the dark chocolate after, and you have 25 grams of uh, egg yolk. So that's roughly one egg yolk, and uh, 20 two gram of white sugar. So you mix the sugar and the egg yolk, and then you pour your uh, warm milk over the, the egg yolk. You mix it well, 
and then you pour it back inside the, the warm milk and then at the end you melt your chocolate inside and then once all this is melted together you pour it in your uh, small dish to bake in the oven and you will bake it at uh, 180 degrees for around 12 minutes uh, so that's for a small small container after of course if you make it bigger maybe you bake it for 15 or 20 minutes just until the egg yolk is set you can do both both ways uh, bain-marie in, in a water bath obviously will give you more uh, smoothness to the to the product and you will have less danger of having a, a, a scrambled eggs in your in your oven now I'm coming back to uh, to the chocolate so this recipe is, uh, is not like a fudgy chocolate recipe. Uh, I think it's very, uh, very nice to eat. It's, uh, uh, it has a very nice balance. You can even add a, a pinch of salt if you want to uh, exhaust the flavor a bit more. But uh, in terms of chocolate, so people always refer to the percentage of uh, cocoa. And uh, to me, the percentage of cocoa is a really, uh, it's, a, it's a commercial aspect of, of chocolate and uh, it's basically for people to, to have a reference but it's not really the way people should work with chocolate because I think uh, you should rather look at the typicity of the chocolate itself like uh, maybe the terroir and, and uh, I mean you can have a, a chocolate at 70% which is very weak and you can have a chocolate at the same percentage 70% that is very strong uh, with a flavor of uh, uh, wood uh, grass, uh, just like wine, basically. And your goal in making a chocolate recipe is really to find the right chocolate for your right for your for your recipe. Where, for example, in such a recipe where it's uh, quite low in uh, in chocolate, uh, you want something very powerful and strong. So it comes through the recipe, and you want these little uh, flavors of uh, tobacco or. Or, uh, or, or earthy tones and so on. For this, is uh, basically you, you need to kind of hunt for the perfect chocolate. Uh, of course, if you go to the supermarket and get the plain industrial dark chocolate, uh, you will have a, a very normal one. But then, if you want to bring your experience a level further, then you should go to specialist shop and then try single origin from Tobago, from Peru, from. Uh, Ecuador and so on, and then you will really get a different uh, finish. Thanks as always to Chef Gregoire Michaud, bringing a sweet note to our desserts. Remember to check out the Beers for Bacon on RTHK3 Facebook page for the recipes. Now, of course, sometimes after dinner you may want to finish your red wine or simply not be in the mood for something sweet. Cheese is as good an end to a meal as any. So I asked the undisputed heavyweight champion of the cheese world, Patrice Marchand, for four knockout cheeses he chews after a meaty meal. The first one is a goat cheese. The second one is a mountain cheese. The third one is a character cheese. And the last one is a blue cheese. And for after the dinner with the beef, you can use for the goat cheese, bouguette is a fresh goat cheese with rosemary. The second one will be uh, Conte, 24 months. The Conte, we do the selection of the Conte. And we do the selection only between uh, spring to uh, start of September. And why? It's because uh, the cow is going outside in the mountain. 
and between 800 meters and 1,200 meters, they will find a small flowers, and the name of the flowers is the bluey. And with the young grass, the milk is completely different, and give to the cheese, a give to the milk, and after to the cheese, a very flavor, a sense, a good, very good sense to the cheese, and it's very perfect. And all the time it's better to choose the Conte from spring and summer, and never for winter. And you can see the pasta. The pasta is yellow in summer and white for uh, winter season. The third one is, could be uh, Petit Gros Lorrain. Petit Gros Lorrain is the cheese of my grandmother. Uh, we find the recipe uh, 16 years ago now. Uh, and my brother is the cheese master of my family. Uh, do it with two producers uh, during one year. And he tried to do it with the recipe of my grandmother and also with his memory because uh, he used his memory because the milk changed because the grass the grass changed the cow changed since uh, 1970 and after one year uh, he found exactly the recipe as he had in the memory and it's like a Münster character cheese and we wash this cheese with alcohol of yellow prune and liquor of yellow prune. The fourth one will be a blue one, blue cheese. The name is Bleu de Brebis Ciré. Bleu de Brebis Ciré it's something like a roquefort. We take off the cellar when it's white, when it's in form, and we put on a cold wax. After that, we inject the Pelicinium Roqueforti and uh, it will be mature in our cellar during six months. It will be less salt and more creamy. And with this kind, four, uh, four kinds of cheese, you can have a very perfect plate of cheese to, to replace the dessert. That was Patrice Marchand giving us a savoury happy ending to a meal. Right, let's finish off with a little bit of alphabet soup. V and W are the letters simmering in our alphabet soup today, and there's no need to be afraid. There's no emission scandal in the pot. Let's start off with the V for Vichyssoise, a cold soup traditionally made with potato, leeks, and cream. V is for Vacheron, which is two things, actually. One, a semi-hard cow's milk cheese, and the other, a dessert of meringue, fresh fruit, and cream. V is for vanilla, a chocolate-colored pod filled with black seeds used predominantly in desserts. W is for waffle, like my show, a flat, crisp, soft-scented cake made with batter cooked in a waffle iron. W is for wafer, a very thin biscuit that's rolled into various shapes and can be filled with a variety of ingredients. The last W is the W for Welsh Rabbit, a cheese on type toasted dish that's flavoured with beer and the W for Worcestershire Sauce. That brings us to the end of our penultimate show in this series. Join me, Jason Black, next week when it really will be all about bacon. Bye for now. That ain't no lie, ain't running any race. Get to me my country pie. I won't throw it up in anybody's face. Take me up that old beach street. Little Jack Horner got nothing on me. Oh, me, oh, my. Love that country pie.